Well, this morning our text is uh, continuing in the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 9 still. Uh, Mark 9, starting in verse 14. So please follow along as I read aloud. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I believe that one of the common experiences for all of humanity is this experience of mountaintops and of valleys in life. And surely all of us can point to seasons of life, uh, seasons, uh, times in, in our lives where, where there are mountaintop experiences, these moments where we remember them with joy. And just as surely, I, I can imagine that each of us can point to times or seasons of life where we consider those to be valley experiences, moments where it seems like nothing is going right, moments that are filled with hardship and oftentimes even brokenness. And this morning's passage, in a way, mirrors that same cycle that we all experience in life, the cycle of, of ups and downs. And our passage comes immediately after the transfiguration, this powerful moment where Jesus is meeting with three of his disciples and he, he briefly unveils his true glory of who he truly is to his three disciples. And then he leaves the mountaintop, this moment which was surely a, a respite, uh, this moment of, of encouragement for Jesus as he's preparing to go to the cross. And Jesus leaves the mountaintop and he quickly finds himself once again face to face with the brutal reality of just how broken our world is. This morning's passage centers around brokenness and, and also the, the surety that we can have of, of Jesus' victory over that brokenness. 
You see, in this passage, we see the brokenness of evil running rampant in God's creation. It's highlighted by this boy who is enslaved to the demonic. We also see Jesus' compassion in addressing this issue. And yet, as significant as the brokenness of evil is in this passage, it's not the primary focus. Mark 5, 1 through 20, we see that that's the primary focus, that Jesus addresses evil. He takes it head on, and he is utterly victorious. The, the, the focus of this passage is slightly different. Not only does Jesus address the brokenness of evil, he also addresses the brokenness of unbelief. You see, time and time again in this passage, Jesus is confronted with unbelief. Right after he's fellowshiped with his heavenly Father on the top of this mountain, he comes face to face with unbelief. He is so exasperated because he dwells in the midst of what he calls a faithless generation. And surely that term could probably be used to describe our generation as well, is it not? And so it it comes without surprise that this passage has much to speak to us today, as we all wrestle to one degree or another with the brokenness of unbelief in our lives. And so let's take a look at this story. We'll go through it verse by verse. Uh, As we do so, we're going to look at the brokenness of evil, but we're also going to look at the brokenness of unbelief. But before we do so, let's pause and pray for God's help to be with us in overcoming our own unbelief this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, consider your word this morning, we first pause and confess our great need for your spirit to come, for your spirit to be the one to speak to us. It's my prayer, it's, it's our prayer that, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would increasingly open our eyes to see you as worthy of all of our trust and all of our devotion. God, we simply ask that you would bless this time in your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first, let's uh, consider the brokenness of evil. Uh, Verse 14 again. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. So our text begins immediately after last week's Jesus, James, John, and Peter. They've gone up on top of this mountain. Now they're going down the mountain. They're descending the mountain. When they get to the bottom, they find the rest of the disciples, the other nine. They're surrounded by this crowd, and they're in the midst of an argument with the scribes. Now, Mark doesn't make explicit what they're actually arguing about here, but based off of the context of this passage, specifically verse 17 and verse 18, we can make a pretty good guess about what this argument is about. Apparently, this man has come forward. He's looking for Jesus. He doesn't find Jesus. Instead, he finds Jesus' disciples. His son is in desperate need of of an exorcism. And so the disciples, if we remember back to Mark 6, the disciples have been successful in casting out demons before. And and so they decide, well, we can do this. We've done it before. Uh, Let's let's go ahead and and we'll take care of your son. They try to uh, heal this man's son. But... Unlike Mark 6, verse 7 through 13, the disciples are unsuccessful. And the scribes are, are just watching nearby, and they catch on, and they, they seize an opportunity. They, they pounce on Jesus' disciples. This is an opportunity for them. They're, they're out to undermine Jesus, undermine his ministry, and they see this as a, a wonderful opportunity to do so. And things are undoubtedly chaotic in the midst of this argument. The crowd's just so transfixed on, on what's taking place that, that they don't even notice Jesus as he's coming down the mountain until he's in their very midst. 
Verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. Now, we've seen this before, right? We've been in the Gospel of Mark for about a year now. We've seen these crowds flock to Jesus time and time again, and they're always amazed by him. What's significant in this passage, however, is that this is the first time that they're amazed at Jesus before he even does anything. Before he even speaks, before he even uh, heals someone or casts out a demon, the, the crowds are amazed. Jesus' power and authority has gone before him, and everyone is amazed. Verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So Jesus approaches this crowd, and, and he silences the crowd by, by asking this question. He's asking for the cause of all this commotion. And this question is, is directed primarily at the scribes, and the scribes remain silent. You would think that, that the scribes would answer, or, or at least Jesus' disciples would answer, but they also remain silent. Perhaps they're just embarrassed that they're in the midst of this argument, and Jesus caught them in it. And so finally, someone steps forward and, and speaks up and says, this is, what, this is what the problem is. And he tells us that, that his son, and Luke, in the parallel passage, tells us it is his only son, has been struggling or suffering from this demon possession, and this demon has caused him to be mute. We see later in verse 25, it's caused him to be deaf. And he's suffering from something that looks a lot like epilepsy and brought his son to the disciples and asked for healing. And nothing happened. Now, that's not to say that because the symptoms here uh, line up with what we would consider to be epilepsy as well as, as deafness and muteness, that this is merely epilepsy. The first century writers, they didn't understand medical conditions. No, Mark is very explicit. He's, he says that this is some sort of demonic force that's behind all of this boy's suffering. Other places, Mark differentiates between what is a, a physical ailment or a, or a natural condition and that which is demonic. And Jesus has power over them both. So this isn't just some form of epilepsy, but also at the same time, this passage is not making some sort of claim that anyone who suffers from these type of seizures is suffering with the, uh, with the, the demonic as some can conclude from this passage. We can't say more than what this text is saying. Well, that, therefore, everyone who suffers this way is, is demon-possessed. We can't say less than what this text is saying and say, well, well Jesus' disciples, Mark, they just didn't understand what's taking place here in this passage. So there is a serious issue that is being faced by Jesus' disciples, but even more by this man and his son. And the father's description is vivid. It's honestly heartbreaking. Paints this picture of a boy who is trapped within his own body. He can't speak. He can't describe the suffering. He can't cry out for help. He, he can't even just cry with his mom and dad. Not only is he mute, but he also can't hear. He, he's deaf. He can't hear the words of comfort that people offer to him. And he can't control his body. Luke, in the parallel passage, tells us that this is a common occurrence. It's frequent, that the demon possession, uh, quote, will hardly ever leave him. This is a daily suffering for this boy and for his family. This boy, he's the epitome of helpless right here. And I don't think it's too far to say that the same thing goes for his dad. In verse 22, the boy 
uh, the boy's father comes to Jesus and says that this demon oftentimes tries to kill him by throwing the boy in water and throwing him in fire. And the implication, of course, is that the demon has failed. But the reason why the demon has failed time and time again is because his dad has intervened. Night and day, this dad is constantly watching in order to save his son's life. He's done all that he can in order to help his little boy, his only son. He's done all that he can to preserve his son's life. And you want to talk about the brokenness of evil. This right here is it. This is a boy whose entire childhood is robbed from him because of the demonic. This is a, a, a father whose, whose heart breaks because his son suffers incessantly. And just for a moment, just, just think about, about Jesus at this point. Last week we saw the transfiguration took place for two reasons. Jesus goes up on this mountain, and Luke tells us that he goes up on this mountain in order to pray. And he goes up on this mountain, and the first reason why the transfiguration takes place is for the disciples and for us, reading thousands of years later, to just get this little glimpse of Jesus' glory. But there was another reason for the transfiguration, one that Luke goes into, that tells us why, for Jesus, the transfiguration took place. Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And literally that word in Greek is exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So one of the reasons why the transfiguration takes place is for us. It's to, to show us, show the disciples that Jesus is who he actually says he is. But there's another reason for the transfiguration, and that is to encourage Jesus. Jesus is about to head toward Jerusalem. He's about to head toward the cross. And this moment is in order to strengthen his resolve. It is in order to strengthen the fact that he is about to take on the sins of the entire world. He's about to lead the people of God on a new exodus. This time no longer just freeing people from slavery to the Egyptians, but now freeing them from slavery to the chains of sin. From slavery to the evil one. So that's all taking place, just moments before this. And then Jesus comes down this mountain, and he comes face to face with the chains of the evil one. Now, it's, it's not as though Jesus needs a reminder of why he's about to go to the cross. He doesn't need a reminder that his creation is broken, but his disciples did. His disciples needed a reminder of what Jesus has come to do, this exodus that Jesus is about to depart on. And if Jesus is, is truly able or willing or, or going to, to free this boy from, from the chains of, of the evil one, the chains of sin, then he must go to the cross and he must deal with the brokenness of evil once and for all. Of course, I mentioned that this passage doesn't just or even primarily focus on the brokenness of evil. Uh, if anything, I think that the, the, this, the Spirit is speaking of an, of an even danger, a greater danger facing us today, and it is the brokenness of unbelief. Pick up in verse 19. And he, Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? 
Now, perhaps the first thing that you would do if you were in Jesus' situation, once you hear about this man's son and what he is suffering from, the first thing that you would do is to heal him immediately. And, and maybe that's what we think that Jesus would do, this, this compassionate Jesus, that he would, first things first, he would take care of this little boy's suffering, and yet Jesus doesn't do that. At least he doesn't do it right away. He knows that he's going to liberate this little boy from the bonds of evil. He, he knows that this family is going to be restored. He's, he's Jesus after all. But before he does that, Jesus does what he does so often in the Gospel of Mark. He seizes the moment and the opportunity to teach people about an even greater danger facing them. And that is the brokenness of unbelief. And Jesus cries out. He's exasperated. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This cry about the faithless generation comes from the only faithful one in human history. Who's in view here when Jesus refers to the faithless generation? Well, it certainly includes the disciples. After all, this comes right on the heels of this man saying, I brought this, my son, to your disciples, and they did nothing. They were unable to heal him. Jesus has given his disciples authority over the demonic in Mark 6, so why is it that they're not able to do so now? It is a, a statement about his, his disciples, that his disciples are faithless. They're, they're struggling with unbelief, but even more generally, it's a statement about the crowd as a whole. It includes the, the scribes who are gleefully celebrating that the disciples have failed rather than trying to help this boy. It includes the crowd that's gathered around, not so much because they care about this man and care about this boy, but just because they want to see something really cool. And even more generally, it refers to all of us, all of us that make the cross necessary because of unbelief, because of a lack of faith that dwells within each and every one of our hearts. Jesus says in verse 19, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. So Jesus has raised the issue of unbelief by talking about the faithless generation. He's, he's not done with it. He's going he's to come back to it. But now he, he turns to the boy. And having focused on, on the boy, he, he's going to use this boy's heart-wrenching condition to probe the faith of his dad. And so he calls the boy forward, and this boy begins to convulse and, and writhe on the ground in the very presence of Jesus. And, and we see that this demon recognizes who Jesus is better than anyone else present, and yet he still hates Jesus. And the demon's convulsions and the, the father's descriptions of this demon uh, sa says that many attempts throughout his life reveal the, the true intent of the demonic. And this isn't just true in this boy's life. This is true uh, generally. The, the intent of the demonic, the, the intent of, of evil forces that are arrayed against us and against Christ. Because they hate God, they will do all that they can to destroy his image bearers, just like this boy. If they cannot destroy, this, if they cannot destroy God, then they're going to destroy those who are made in God's image, that is, humanity. 
And one of the reasons why Satan hates you and hates all of humanity is because he hates God and you were made to reflect God. No matter what you do with your life, whatever he can do, he will try to lead you away from God. He will try to desecrate God's image in you. He knows that he can't destroy God, but he will do all that he can to lead you as God's image bearer away from him in this defiant hatred of the one who created him and who created you. That's all what, what we see here. When the, when the demon tries to kill this boy, he's trying to destroy the image of God in this boy. Continue with the Father's words, verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, I'm sympathetic to this dad. It's not at all surprising that the dad's confidence wavers. He's never actually seen, as far as we know, he's never actually seen Jesus perform an exorcism or do a healing in person. He's dealt with this, what is taking place right now with his son. He has dealt with this much of his son's life. This is his new normal that he experiences. Nothing that he has done to this point has worked for his son. Who knows how many exorcisms he's attempted? Who knows how many times he's tried these homemade remedies from, from various people and all of them have failed him? He's explored every avenue, and he's been left empty-handed after each time. And now he's come to Jesus, and Jesus' disciples are there, and Jesus' disciples say, hey, we represent Jesus, we'll take care of this, and what happens? They fail. And so, of course, the man uses the word if. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, Jesus responds with a pointed question. And of course, the Bible doesn't give us Jesus's tone, but I don't think Jesus's uh, tone is accusatory here. Like, if you can, I don't think that that's what his tone is like. Jesus isn't teasing the man as much as he's trying to tease out faith or this confession of faith. This is what Jesus does time and time again in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5, 21 through 43, we see that Jairus comes to Jesus and says, My little daughter, my baby girl is sick, and I need you to come and heal her before she dies. And Jesus waits until she dies and says, Do not fear, only believe. Mark 7, 24 through 30, Jesus is talking with this Syrophoenician woman who says, hey, you've got to heal my baby girl. And how does Jesus respond? It's not right to give to the dogs what is meant for the children. Both of these moments and this moment here are moments where Jesus is teasing out faith, giving people an opportunity to make a confession of who he truly is. If you can, my dear friend, it's not a matter of if I can do it or not. The real question is if you have faith. See that the brokenness of evil, as awful as it may be, it's being used by Jesus to address a deeper issue. The heart of the matter here, the brokenness of unbelief. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It's a verse that's worth a sermon on its own. I just want to just draw attention to three points from this verse. 
First, notice the very first word in this, in this verse. Immediately. If, the, if, this, if this healing lies not with Jesus' ability, but in his faith, then he responds immediately to Jesus. He's going to do whatever he can, and so he immediately responds to Jesus' questioning, do you have faith? Second, notice what the father cries out. He cries out in repentance, really. Jesus has confronted this man's unbelief, and the man immediately responds with this confession of faith. He says, I believe. Repentance is this moment where we stop going one way and we turn around and go the exact opposite direction, and that's what happens here. The very moment that this man is made aware of his unbelief, he repents. And what a powerful picture of repentance, of the immediacy that we often ignore when God calls us to repent in areas of our lives. This man repents and he does so immediately and he turns to Jesus in belief. Finally, notice that the dad's faith is not perfect. It is not perfect. Not only does he confess his faith, he he confesses his belief, but he also confesses his unbelief. He confesses his lack of faith and that it remains. And, And he knows that Jesus doesn't demand this perfect faith from him Because if Jesus demanded a perfect faith from him and and from us, then there would be no chance of salvation. If uh, If Jesus said, you cannot ever doubt me, otherwise you will not be a part of my family, that you will not be offered salvation, then none of us could come to Christ in faith. Jesus accepts this man's faith, all of its warts and and everything, all of its imperfections. He says, come to me. And this man gets that, that what matters is not the strength of your faith, the quality of your faith, as much as the object of your faith. Where is your faith pointed at? In whom is your faith? It's in Jesus for this man. And so he cries out with words that we all should take to heart. Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You want to know the secret to overcoming unbelief or a lack of faith in your life, this brokenness in your life? It's by bringing it to Jesus. It's to repent of your unbelief by also at the same time recognizing that you can't stir up faith in yourself. Faith only comes by going to Jesus. Jesus is a master of getting to the heart of the issue. He's a master of this entire situation. He's in, he's in completely in control in this moment and to, to the point where he even waits to heal this son until he hears what his father has to say about deeper issues, namely the issues of faith. But then he hears this father's beautiful confession and he heals the man, or heals the boy instantly, which is a word. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So here's Jesus, he's 
victorious over evil. He speaks. The demon is forced to listen. The demon leaves this boy, and he leaves the boy leaving as though he is dead, which is the opinion of the crowd. And just imagine for a moment that you are the father in this situation, that you uh, are, are asking Jesus for this healing, for this exorcism. And there's a couple heartbeats here between when the exorcism ceases and when Jesus picks his boy up. Talk about a moment to test your faith, to check whether you believe, and to have help with your unbelief. But Jesus is this one who has power over life and death, and so he, he takes this boy, that he is freed from the power of death, and he has given him new life. He lifts this little boy up, and he gives him to his father, and we see that there is this victory over the brokenness of evil that's found only in Jesus. And that would be a great place to end this text. The boy and his dad, as far as we know, they live happily ever after, and, and, and yet the, the text doesn't end there, because as beautiful and, and as moving as this rescue of the boy is, Jesus has a deeper lesson for his disciples, he has a deeper lesson for us as well from this text. Verses 28 and 29, the, the epilogue, if you will, of this passage. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So later, in private, after the, the tears of joy from the dad and the son, they've dried, after the crowd has been dispersed, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they head to this home and they begin having this conversation in private. And the disciples ask this question that's been lurking at the back of their minds, probably at the back of our minds as well, from the very beginning of this passage, what did we do wrong? We used to be able to do this. We used to be able to, to cast out demons. We can't do it now. Why not? Now, I'd imagine that most of you have Bibles that say something very similar to what I read just a few moments ago in verse 29. Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some of you might have a Bible that says something slightly different, or um, you might be familiar with translations or with this phrase uh, that comes from different translations that says something like this. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. And so, which is it? What, what is it that Jesus actually says? See, the implication of this second, this second reading, that this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting, is that there are different levels of demons. There are the easy ones. You know what, disciples, you can handle those. You can take care of those. Those are the ones you face in Mark chapter 6. But then there are the special ones. There are the super powerful ones that take extra work, where you have to be committed, where you have to fast and pray. That sounds reasonable, except it flies completely in the face of what Jesus is saying here. To understand Jesus' point, I want us to all put our, ourselves in the shoes of one of those nine disciples that didn't go up the Mount of Transfiguration. All right, so, so imagine that you're not James, you're not John, you're not Peter, you don't get to go with Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration. Imagine that you're one of the, the other nine here. You've been traveling with Jesus for about two and a half years at this point, and then you get to this point where Jesus says, all right, well, I'm going to go on a prayer retreat for a few days, and I'm going to bring three of you with me. Uh, it's going to be James, uh, John, and Peter, and the rest of you just stay here. Now, be honest, if you were one of the other nine, how would you feel? 
disappointed? Like there was something wrong with you? Let down? Insecure? Maybe you feel like you got something that you need to prove so that next time Jesus goes on a prayer retreat, well, he won't skip you. You'll have your opportunity next time. And so Jesus and, and the three, they leave, and you and the rest of the nine are just wondering, well, what on earth are we missing? What's, what's going on on this prayer retreat? But then this man appears with his son, and they need help getting rid of a demon, and, and aha! I've done this before. I can take care of this. Here's my opportunity to prove to Jesus when he comes back down the mountain Hey, you know what? You should really reevaluate re- who you choose to go on your prayer retreats. And so the nine attempt to heal this boy, but they do so because they have something to prove. And, and again, it, this isn't explicit in the text, but it, it's, it's implied based off of the context and, and the no- natural reading of this text. And, and they want to show their worth to Jesus in this moment. And how often do we do the same? want to prove ourselves to Jesus. And so they approach this demon not from a place of prayerful dependence upon God, upon the power of God like Jesus does every waking moment of his life, but from a place of independence with something to prove. And so they approach this moment and they they begin to see that the the real spirit source of their success in Mark 6 when they were doing this is themselves and not in the power of God. Of course, we spent about 30 minutes or more looking at just how wrong they are in this moment, and now they're asking Jesus, why? Why couldn't we do this? And how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds by saying, you forgot to pray. Of all the things you forgot to do, you forgot to pray. In other words, Jesus is teaching the disciples, he's teaching us the same lesson that we need to hear over and over and over and over again. Beware of unbelief. Beware of relying on yourself. Specifically here in this moment, beware of unbelief that rears its ugly head and the delusion of thinking that we really don't need Jesus, that we can handle this on our own. Thank you very much. And here are the disciples, and they failed because of a lack of belief. A lack of belief in who Jesus is, a lack of dependence upon Jesus. But the man, the father of this little boy, on the other hand, shows us exactly what belief looks like. Not that it's perfect, but that it's desperate. And it's throwing everything on the hope that Jesus can deliver on what he says he will deliver on. This man knew that he could not save his son, and so he brought his faith, warts and all, and he brought it to Jesus. And meanwhile, the disciples delude themselves into thinking, you know what, I'm relatively competent on my own. I think I can take care of this. Jesus is a nice addition, but he's not essential for the task at hand. So what can we learn from this passage? I think it's simple, and it's taught to us in the positive as well as in the negative in this passage is simply this. What is required is not perfect trust, but trust in the perfect one. Let me say that again. What is required from us is not perfect trust, but trust in the perfect 
one. The strength of your faith doesn't matter, but the object of your faith does. For the disciples, they had faith, probably a strong faith, just in the completely opposite and wrong place. It was in themselves. But the Father, his faith is riddled with doubt, but it's focused on the right place, on Jesus. So as we close, just a couple implications to consider from this text. First, unbelief is a matter of repentance. Unbelief is a matter of repentance. Whether you've been a Christian for decades or you don't consider yourself a Christian at all, all of us struggle with unbelief. And the fact of the matter is, when we become aware of our unbelief, it is something that we should repent of. That Jesus expects us to repent of. Just like the Father in this story, there's nothing wrong with doubt, with questions, with not having a perfect faith. But as we become aware of those doubts... As we become aware of this battle of unbelief in our hearts, it should lead us to echo the prayer of the repentance of the Father here. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Next, goes hand in hand with that. Jesus is the only one who can help you to overcome your unbelief. Have you ever wrestled with how you might cultivate more faith in your life? Well, part of it comes through exercising your faith like a muscle, but even more than that, the more you put, as you put your, your faith in Jesus, the, the more your faith grows. But even more than that, when you look to Jesus in dependence upon him and saying, Jesus, I am fully and utterly dependent upon you, not only to, to save me, but also to trust in you, to help me to trust in you more, our faith grows. So we strengthen our faith by asking Jesus to help us because we are dependent upon him. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One final implication here. For so many of us, we consider ourselves Christian. This text is a very sobering reminder to us of those who are closest to Jesus getting it completely wrong. Not only that, but one of our greatest struggles of unbelief in our lives is not recognizing, like the disciples, not recognizing how utterly dependent upon Jesus we are. Especially in our society, with, with all of its technological advances, all of the resources that are at our fingertips, it is admittedly easy for us to not be dependent, to not depend upon Jesus. And our culture actually sees independence as, as a virtue. Jesus, however, says something otherwise, specifically when talking about prayer. When our life is marked by prayerlessness, it's a sign that we don't actually believe, that we are dependent upon Jesus. And sure, if we were asked on Sundays or someone asks us throughout the week, we would confess that, yes, Jesus is the one who is our provider. Jesus is the one who is our sustainer. But through the week, we live as functional atheists, those who live as though God is an optional add-on to our lives, not the one who is sustaining all things in our lives. It is to use the language of this passage, unbelief. And so in a response to such an unbelieving heart in our lives, I, I just pray that this passage 
would wake us up to the reality of our great need for Jesus. That even though each and every one of us is prone to operate and to think about life through the lens of the disciples, Jesus, you're an optional add-on to me that we would begin to start looking at life through the lens of the Father. And that we would echo his prayer in this moment of helplessness and utter dependence upon Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that all too often in my own life, I am not utterly dependent upon you, or at least I don't think that I am. And I ask for forgiveness. God, I pray that you would help me to become increasingly aware of bastions of unbelief in my life and that I would be quick to repent of them. To cry out with this, Father, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I ask that you would help each person here to turn their eyes to you. That we would not grow increasingly concerned with how strong our faith is, but instead that we would be solely concerned on who our faith is in. Help us, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.